G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good night, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast in uh, week six, seven or eight of lost count of uh, lockdown. And we are coming to you uh, via the wonders of modern technology yet again. I am here in the Connolly studios and my Footyology co-host Mark Fine pushing the buttons down there at the Brighton studios of Southern FM, as I say, a very uh, good well, afternoon now to him. How are you, Fanny? Oh, I'm well. Good to see you on Zoom. You're looking well. You're looking clipped and trimmed. Yes, well, it was uh, uh, in the context of this lockdown, uh, it was a big moment on Friday. I got my hairdresser to come around and uh, cut my hair, which was very nice of her. And uh, I'm looking slightly less her suit. But uh, yeah, it was like, you know, it, it was like an overseas trip given the confines uh, I've been in recently. Yourself, what have you about? What's the most uh, adventurous thing you've done in the past week? Probably taking the dogs to our local park, our local dog park for another run. That's about as far out as I get, except for a bit of shopping. We continue to tour the world in a culinary sense in the fine household, trying to keep the meals interesting for the kids. And I'm very pleased to say that last night, my youngest daughter, Harper, prepared a an Indian banquet followed a cookbook oh, and did very well. Very impressive. Now, I, well, now I know where those, uh, the, the gene, genealogy in that regard is very good. You're an accomplished cook and good to see your children following in your footsteps. You must be very proud. I am proud. The one thing that we don't need to teach them, even though uh, I'm sure they'd be capable of producing a good hamburger, is the Great Australian Burger because we continue to get the Great Australian Burger from the great purveyors of Australian burgers that sponsor Thank You Time and Andrew's Hamburgers remain open and have remained open. Is it an essential service? Well, food is. And if you're going to get food, essentially get the best. Get the best Aussie hamburger you can with those beautiful buns, succulent meat patty, as Rowan always tells you, from 144 Bridport Street in Albert Park. I speak of none other than our wonderful sponsors, Andrew's Hamburgers. I can taste it right now. Now, what about the essential home renovation? Where would I go there? Follow... Well, the football star's choice, really, when you think of Dyson, Heppel and Scott Pendlebury, Mike Sheehan from our world, the world that covers football, it's West Point Properties. Nick Spartel is the principal there. Just go onto your Google search if you're a southeast Melbourneian and you're looking to maximise the value of your property with a classy renovation or perhaps a total rebuild or a new home. It's West Point Properties, Rowan. I'm off there right now, Finey. We have got a lot to get through today, all the usual uh, segments, life hacks, vinyl and video, the rants, of course, uh, pretty fruity rant uh, I've got today. I don't know about you, Finey, but uh, let's waste no more time. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. 
Okay, well, uh, we've got the usual um, updates for you in terms of uh, AFL season and when that may actually start again. But um, pretty serious subject matter to start with, Fanny. And uh, I want to tread delicately about this, mainly um, for reasons of mental health and legal sensibilities. We're talking about impending court cases and charges. Um, but also... In that regard, I mean, that has become a story. Now, I'm talking about the um, arrest on Saturday night of former North Melbourne Premiership player and coach Dean Waverley. Uh, he's been charged with a, a range of offences, including stalking. Um, but there is a, uh, what would I say, a prurient uh, side to this story and uh, a very unfortunate one, I think, and that is that whilst... He was being interviewed by the police at headquarters. Someone in that building, who hopefully will become known to the authorities, um, decided to take a candid shot of Dean Waverley, which was promptly circulated on social media. Um, and Dean, at the time, was in women's clothing, and uh, that clearly was the subject of some mirth for a lot of people out there. And, and this now has sort of become a bigger story. Um, first, from a morals point of view, uh, how people uh, see um, transgenderism or transvestism or cross-dressing. So I'm not even 100% sure on what the right phrase phraseology to use now is. But a, a much more important and serious issue for me, just the uh, um, breach of... Uh, privacy, which any person, regardless of how serious the charges against them, is entitled to. Now, that has clearly been breached. The person that breached it knew they were doing that. Every person who distributed the images on social media knew that. And most disturbingly at all, though I wish I was surprised, but I'm not, a range of newspapers around the country chose to republish the same images, knowing that they had been taken illegally and distributed illegally and the rationale obviously being that, well, they're all over social media anyway. Now, I'm, I'm pretty angry about this, Fanny, for a number of reasons. One, this is another example of the media just completely disregarding their codes of conduct and their ethics yet again, and we've sort of grown used to that. But secondly, you know, the media is in the vanguard of driving the message about mental health and, you know, people in precarious positions being treated at least with some decency. And uh, this hasn't happened. And I, I think it's quite outrageous. And, and indeed, I was looking, and look, I'll name names. In Melbourne, for example, The Age had access to the pictures but chose not to publish them. The Herald Sun, at the same time, I'm actually looking at the Herald Sun online now, and the headline says, probe into Laidley leak as lawyer blasts police. Um, and they basically concede or have comments from people conceding that these images have been obtained and distributed illegally, and they have chosen to republish them. Uh, and they were splashed all over the uh, front page of the, of the print edition this morning as well. And just a, another point there, I mean, a, a reasonable proportion of their readership, being a bit, uh, I guess, older in that demographic uh, category, uh, probably hadn't seen these images. So... You know, at, at what my question is, at what point will people actively involved in, in the media actually walk the walk when it comes to these sorts of issues? And it's not even, in this case, just a moral issue. It's a legal issue as well. So I think it's pretty disgusting. And I, I've tweeted as much both last night when I said, you know, how about people start walking the walk? 
And unfortunately, again, today, after recognising that that perhaps predictably hadn't happened. Um, how do you see it? It is a classic piece of modern uh, journalism in as much as, you know, that foot in the door lens through the unguarded window as has been the case here. It's a photo that was taken illegally without the permission of the subject or even in a, not even the permission of the subject, as you pointed out, during a police interview when the taking of an image was absolutely not permitted. It's simply not enough. And we see it all the time. Isn't it just the modern dynamic that a story that is purported to be covering the news which shrouds itself in faux decency by putting at the end of the story, may it be on a, in a newspaper article or on a TV piece, uh, if you personally are having any problems, contact Lifeline with the phone number, as though that's a coverall permission slip to allow media outlets to in fact participate in the sideshow element of the broadcast of this story. So they pretend to care about mental health. They pretend to be reporting about the ills and the wrongdoings in this story, where, in fact, what they are really doing is looking to increase readership, in this case, the Herald Sun, by, you know, opening up the curtain on to the sideshow. It's sickening. It's absolutely sickening. But, unfortunately, it is the modern dynamic. It is the world we now live in. And whilst I offered no excuse on behalf of the Herald Sun, and I do credit the age with resisting being part of the sideshow, I get a sense that really the age's higher ground that they are taking will only be measured in hours or at the best a day or two before they too enter into the um, publishing of photos and covering the side of the story that may further add to the grief of the family concerned, the grief of the individual concerned, which affects mental health. And also, we shouldn't forget that this is a police case with an alleged victim of stalking who also must be impacted by this public display. Now, what do I say? I say a sort of your, you, you remain um, not only appalled, but a vigilant against this happening, where I unfortunately sort of stroke my beard and cluck my tongue and say, this is the world we live in. I'm not surprised and there's nothing we can now do about it. Yeah, uh, look, I'm I'm not actually convinced that the age will at some stage run those photos. And I think it's really important that they don't now having taken that stance. And I'll be really disappointed if they do. And if anyone out there's sort of listening to this and going, oh, yeah, Connolly, just another chance to slag off News Corp and talk up the age. Well, I haven't worked at the age now for nearly three years. There are lots of things they do now which annoy me and I uh, am quite happy to voice them. And so I have no vested interest in this, but I, I do think I, I do think it's good what they have done. My, my point, though, is this. Okay, so by publishing those photos, the Herald Sun gets some more clicks, they get a few more reads, on a story, I mean, compare that against the potential damage of even wider circulation of these pictures. Now, if people are even remotely serious about um, having empathy and caring about people's mental health, they have a duty to actually be prepared to make some sort of sacrifices themselves 
when it comes to important issues. And, and this is one thing that new, uh, media organisations routinely are not prepared to do. They will talk the talk, but if it's at any cost to themselves in terms of potential reads, clicks, whatever, they won't. They won't follow through. And I would, I would argue that the you know, potential financial gain out of them running those photos is pretty negligible. In this day and age, the revolving door that is the news cycle you know, that story will be come and go in, in less than half a day. So what are they actually prepared to jeopardise? And you made the point yourself, not just Dean Laidley, his family, his children, um, his friends, his associates, the alleged victim in the case in which he's been charged with stalking. That just increases the grief and, and misery and, and humiliation, whatever you call it, for all of them. So you're not talking about just one person's mental health. And I've had a lot of people saying to me, what about the victim? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm talking about them as well. When is someone in a major media organisation, you know, going to actually say enough, enough? Now, well, some have. The ABC have. The Age or Nine News, in this case, owning The Age, they have. News Corp, perhaps not surprisingly, continues to go for the lowest common denominator. Uh, the other point I'd just like to make on this too is a lot of people have tweeted to me today and last night, why are you insinuating that because uh, Dean was cross-dressing, there is a mental health issue? I am not. That is, that, that is a, uh, a preference of lifestyle or sexual expression of sexuality, call it whatever you will. But there are a number of issues here, aren't there? There, are, there is the um, alleged substance use and abuse there is stalking. And I think it's fair to put several issues together and conclude there are some mental health issues going on. So I am not making no judgment whatsoever on his penchant for cross-dressing. You raised a really good point. I want also, you to just, just, just in addition to that, yep. the fact that yep. uh, through his legal team, he has not contested his um, the fact that he's been reprimanded in custody. Now, there's no doubt that this case whilst being high profile, he would have had no problem getting bail and returning to his uh, life out in public. But he has chosen to remain in custody until a hearing on May the 11th, and that does speak to some level of mental stress. No question about that, none whatsoever. I just want you to address uh, the point you made to me earlier today about how we view... LGBT matters. Now, uh, it's fair to say that attitudes have changed significantly about homosexuality, uh, bisexuality, but the, that whole issue of transvestism, transgender, uh, that is still a very thorny issue for a lot of people and it's really being put to the test in this case, isn't it? And so far, the initial indications are that uh, society has a fair way to go in terms of acceptance of that. Huge test to the LGBTQT question, which has been embraced positively by so many public groups, including the AFL, through their um, match each year between St Kilda and the Swans. I just feel that uh, LG is more familiar to the general public. Lesbian, uh, lesbianism, gay, referring more to uh, male homosexuality. I think we're now in a position where most of us uh, know, are, have been associated with people who are lesbian or gay. But transgenderism, transvestism, 
I hope I get the term correct, gender identity is a far less talked about issue. It still garners smirks and finger pointing. It is more difficult for people to potentially comprehend that there are lives led by people who outwardly uh, seem to us to be more normal family type people that also are cross-dressers and make lifestyle choices that are totally legal and not that we should be sympathetic to, that we should be comfortable in living with. But I don't think we've got there yes, yet. And the fact that Dean Laidley, certainly in the world of football, whilst he's not high profile to non-football fans, he's been a very high profile football identity through playing and coaching. And we'll just see how comfortable the world is, the football world is, with the T in LGBTQT, because I I get a sense that it is a thornier issue than the L and the G. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, um, yeah, it's a very important point you raise. And perhaps, I don't know, I, I guess maybe this will force people to think about that a bit more. And perhaps um, once we... the sniggering the sniggering is done with, which uh, last night on social media, I mean, I, I love social media, but there are times when it's pretty bloody horrible. And uh, there are times, to be honest, and I tweeted this just before, that, um, you know, I've, I've been a long-time member of the media, but there are times I'm really embarrassed to be tarred with the same brush. And uh, given the behaviour of several major media outlets today, um, this is one of them. I, I, don't right, think football, I don't think football handled the Hannah Mouncey issue all that well. No, no, I think you're right. Uh, I think you're right. And um, actually, I, I, Hannah responded to a tweet my tweet about this last night and uh yeah look she's been through the absolute ringer and um yeah i guess we've just got to live and learn through more experiences like this now um an update on the afl season and uh, a bit of positive news finally there was a phone hookup on saturday morning between afl ceo gil mclaughlin and the clubs where he spoke about <clears throat> an endorsed pathway um, by which the AFL season could resume. He talked about restricting um, or the restrictions being eased and that could potentially allow the fixture to be completed in a uh, more traditional form other than having hubs and um, arrangements like that at grand finals in December. The issue of crowds, obviously, is still a very vexed one and I know you're not optimistic about that, but basically speaking, the... National Cabinet meeting on Friday um, reiterated the uh, idea that in Victoria, for example, uh, Dan Andrews and the state government will be uh, reviewing and announcing where we're at on May 11th about whether we can go to stage B of restrictions. Now, in a sporting sense, and this has been ticked off by the AIS, that would allow groups of up to 10 players to train together. Now, that is already the case in some states like WA, but the AFL... I think rightly has decided that everyone should be equal on this front. So they are restricted from doing that until everyone's got the green light. And stage B would be the resumption first of competitive training and then match play. Now, McLaughlin believes that given that, and particularly the potential for fly-in, fly-out match arrangements where sides don't have to quarantine for a couple of weeks uh, as long as they're sort of kept fairly well-guarded and away from the bulk of the public, we could have 
fly-in, fly-out arrangements that would, <clears throat> that would enable the fixture to be completed in a more normal sort of manner. And he thinks it's quite conceivable we could have the season done and a grand final played by the end of October, which I have to say makes me feel a lot better about the legitimacy of any sort of season we have. How, what do you think? I think that sums it up all pretty well. I, I still don't like the idea of football, especially finals, and then a grand final being played in front of an empty stadium. And believe me, that's what will be the case, even if we do resume play sometime in June. Um, look, the fact is that we just need to understand COVID-19 exists. It has not gone away. COVID-19 has neither a vaccine to prevent to guarantee that we don't get it, or an effective cure once we do have it. In other words, we're in exactly the same position we were at the start of lockdown measures. Lockdown has proven effective. In other words, the transfer of the vaccine from person to person can be prevented by employing safe distancing and by keeping large groups from forming. And basically, Rowan, until we get that vaccine or effective treatment... Football will be played in front of empty houses. How do I feel about that? Well, you know what? St Kilda's done the right thing in this regard ever since I was one year old. More on that later on, by the way, in not winning a premiership. I'm sure they'll do the right thing this year and not win in front of an empty house for me. Good on you, Saints. Keep it going. Yeah, look, I mean, this is one of those... It comes down to your personal um, preferences, I suppose, or, or, you know, what for you is the essence of what football's about. And you and I, you know, we're both traditionalists and we both love the culture and the game and the crowds are a, a huge element of that. And it, it just, you know, a grand final in front of no one, it just brings it uncomfortably close to a reality TV concept rather than a sporting competition for me. And I do feel uncomfortable with that. How I'd balance that against a season that still had, you know, one game a week, um, the number of games we had agreed on, which is what another 144 to play after round one, and a grand final that at least is conducted in October, not a week before Christmas. You know, I, I'm going to be interested in my own reaction, and I doubt I really will have a definite reaction until it happens. So I guess a lot of people probably in the same boat. Look, I've got a um, mate who's a Richmond supporter, and he's very keen for the season to get going. And of course he is. If I batted for Richmond, I'd want it to take place. Uh, why? Because Richmond are a, a, a powerhouse. They're in an era of domination. He doesn't care if it's played in front of an empty house or not. Neither would I if I batted for Richmond. I would have seen two premierships in the last three years. And I just want the history book to be padded out with Premier's 2020 Richmond which may well be the case. Very different dynamic to a St Kilda supporter who's waited 50-odd years to see a premiership, hasn't seen it, and would have this diluted or um, ersatz version of a grand final played and a premiership handed over to a club captain who raises it aloft to the cause of seagulls. Very different. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely no question. All right, uh, final item on Newsfeed, and uh, nearly a week ago now, but we can't um, uh, go on without mentioning it, of course. It is the AFLW Best and Fairest, and won by 19-year-old Carlton star Maddie Presparkas. She polled 15 votes to win by three votes from Kiara Bowers from Fremantle and Emma Carney from North Melbourne. 
Emma, of course, a former winner herself. She won in uh, 2018 whilst playing for the Western Bulldogs. Erin Phillips has won the award twice. And uh, this makes fourth. And uh, it is a fantastic achievement, particularly at that age. Also, notably, the first Indigenous uh, player to win the award. And uh, there was a lovely moment. She had a FaceTime call with Gavin Wanganane, who was, of course, the first Indigenous player to win a Brownlow medal. So uh, fantastic achievement from Maddie. She's a wonderful player to watch, if you haven't seen a lot of her. A real bull uh, at the contest in the midfield and plenty of skill as well, but tough skill, everything you want in an on-baller and uh, a fantastic, <clears throat> pardon me, fantastic role model for young, not only female footballers, but uh, females and males uh, of a young age because she's packed a lot in in only a couple of seasons. So uh, congratulations to her. Here, here, and well done, Emma Carney ran second, and that follows on from her win last year. So Erin Phillips on two, Emma Carney almost making it back to back, but uh, that makes it not dissimilar to how the Brownlow medal started. Yes, Kaji Greaves won the first Brownlow, but very quickly Ivor Warren Smith won a couple of Brownlow medals. So we've got a similar pattern, or not pattern here, but after four seasons, two individual winners. So I think it went. Without checking, I think it went roughly Kaji Greaves, a couple of Warren Smiths and a Colin Watson from St Kilda. And here we've got two individuals, Carney from North. Well, actually, Carney from the Bulldogs when she won it, wasn't it? Yeah, in 2018, yeah, they won the flag. Now with North Melbourne and uh, Prestakis and now a double to Erin Phillips. So some similarities there. All right, uh, good stuff. There's enough news for this week. Uh, I think it's time, finally, that uh, we wax lyrical about Matter's life. Life Hacks. Building a better world. Okay, where are we going to go with this topic this week? Well, I'm going to go in a very uh, TV-focused direction, finally. Uh, Firstly... And I thank you for this. We've had a few recommendations of viewing on this show. And the other week, um, you recommended the show on Netflix, Unorthodox, about a family of Hasidic Jews uh, living in New York. And uh, one young woman struggled with that and her eventual escape from it. Uh, well, actually, it's, it starts with her escape, but it's one of those stories where the time frame shifts around a fair bit, but done very effectively. Anyway, I settled settled down uh, last Thursday night and uh, didn't mean to, but ended up binge-watching all four episodes, so about four hours' worth or a bit under, and it is fantastic. It is so well done. It's a gripping story full of tension and drama, Um, very interesting subject matter. We just, you know, well, we, those of us not in the community know so little about how they live and, I guess, the restrictions on their freedom and, and lifestyle. Um, and uh, the acting was just superb, uh, none better than um, Shira Haas in the lead role, playing Esty, the 19-year-old bride who basically couldn't take any more and escapes to Berlin and uh, tries to create a new life for herself. It is, uh, I must admit, when you were telling me about it, I thought, eh, well, I find that interesting enough. Well, I did. It was absolutely riveting TV and just typical of the sort of fare you will get on streaming services now. I thought it was absolutely brilliant and I would, uh, wouldn't hesitate to recommend it to absolutely anyone. There's my first. What's yours? Just interestingly, uh, from 
the perspective of somebody who's Jewish, and you, you haven't mentioned this, but for a lot of us, the most interesting thing about that program, yes, it, it shows Hasidic life in a very real and true fashion. Now, I'm not part of that community, and a lot of it is uh, eye-opening to me, but I know of the community. I've had a family member I mentioned previously who joined a different sect of Hasidism, and there are different sects. This one's the largest one. It's called Satmar. And most interestingly, with this sect, they don't believe in the state of Israel as it currently exists. They're anti-Israel because they believe the Messiah needs to bring Israel, uh, be here before Israel is reformed. So they're very controversial. But this program is predominantly, the, the language spoken is predominantly Yiddish. A lost language to most people, one of the very few, if the if not the first <coughs> ever, broadly watched television series in Yiddish and it's a language even non-religious Jews are familiar with and most people are through a few words that have become part of the vernacular and quite humorously used. A lot of the words you hear that begin with SHM, schmuck, you know, this sort of word uh, derived from Yiddish. So a bit of a sidebar issue there. I want to start with TV as well, but just on recommendations, you recommended the after, or Afterlife to me with Ricky Gervais. Yep. And I've yep. been watching that. I've watched the first season, just starting the second. Uh, I know you are passionate about it. Look, I like it. I can't say that I'm um, addicted to it, but I certainly am going to continue watching it. I'm pleased, spoiler alert here, though it is a bit obvious that he's... I'll just say his character begins to develop, so there's more layers to him, which I think is necessary. And... I can understand, and in fact, there was quite a moving scene in this, I don't want to give it away either, that I think would have hit home to you that was very, um, almost difficult to watch. And I was thinking about you and I was watching it. I can understand that there are times when watching this program, it's so real and raw that the tears would flow, especially if it resonates. So I thought of you while I watched it, Rowan. Yeah, look, I, I howled. I, I've never watched anything that made me laugh and, and cry as much, yeah. sometimes simultaneously. And I, I, I absolutely um, see what you're saying about how, you know, like sort of not much happens. So that to me was one of the the great things about it, that it was so real, that this guy was just absolutely stuck in his grief. Yeah, and, my, and He was like, mired. You know, yeah, and, and couldn't move beyond that. And, um, you know, look, fortunately, I, I haven't lost an immediate partner, but, you know, I, I've, I've lost family members. And, um, yeah, I, I can – it was a lot that resonated for me. So, um, yeah, no, thanks for noticing that. And uh, if you haven't seen it, it is absolutely worth a look, and that is Afterlife by Ricky Gervais. My well, second life hack – yeah, go on. No, no, my we'll call that my first hack. observation and life hack because it, um, yeah, it, it follows on from your recommendations as you did with mine. What's your second? Oh, I thought it was. Sorry, yeah, no, my it second. Is. It now is my sec. My second is um, another uh, bit of viewing. I love documentaries. Uh, the more the merrier. I love them all. And uh, a few people told me about punk, a uh, exploration of the birth and uh, development of the punk music scene, both in the US and the UK. And um, it's on SBS On Demand. And as soon as I saw that Iggy Pop was basically co-directing and producing this, I thought, oh, well, it's going to be good. It's going to be accurate and it's going to be full and it'll be pretty well done. And it absolutely is. And he's one of the main in interview subjects. But it interviews basically a, a who's who of the punk music scene, John Lydon, 
of course, John, aka Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols. And I'll tell you what, Fidey, if you're worried about how we've aged, uh, you can always make yourself feel uh, better by having a look at John Lydon. He hasn't aged in the way you would have thought. Wouldn't you have imagined a pasty-faced, skinny, uh, pale runt with red hair would sort of become even pastier and skinnier? And oh, I, Well, he hasn't. I would have thought more lines on his face than a, a copy of the old Melways, a page out of the Melways. Well, there's plenty of lines, but there's plenty of space for the lines because he is blown up like the Michelin man. He is one big unit, John Lydon. He's just like a he's like one of those round balls that with the ears that you bounce on. Oh dear. Uh orange. Orange as well. Um, no, that's a bit cruel. But uh, very interesting interview subject as always. Iggy Pop's great. They speak to uh the drummer from the Clash. I speak to Guy from The Damned, um, some of the important female groups like The Runaways. I speak to Joan Jett. I speak to Deborah Harrick, you know, who um, is sort of credited for being one of those initial drivers of punk rock with through clubs at like CBGB's in New York. Uh, the Ramones, of course, Get a Fair, Guernsey. Um, I'm pretty sure only two episodes up online as of yet, but it's a four-part series, so... Absolutely. If you've got any interest in popular music at all, check it out because it's a ripper. It is called Punk and it is on SBS On Demand, your second one. Okay. Uh, I've referred to this a couple of times in Life Hacks, but I am aghast as I drove to uh, our studios to record the podcast at the price of petrol. <clears throat> and it it is just absolutely at a price. In fact, it, I had a flashback because when I first got my licence, now I was 18 years old, so it's 1983. And within a couple of years, um, I reckon the price of petrol was not dissimilar to this. I, I'm serious. It's amazing. But on the way here, 89.9 cents a litre. And I remember we used to have an old solo petrol station. Do you remember solo petrol? I do. That was the ACTU owned petrol yeah. um, so place. Yeah. solo petrol station near our place doubled as a mechanics and i think it was about 64.9 i remember but 89.9 cents a liter so i needed a fill i filled up my calais now a fill on my calais is normally around a hundred dollars and i got a full tank of petrol for 45 dollars 80 it's a huge difference and it's almost frustrating because it's the one thing that you cannot selfishly stockpile. It's not toilet paper or tins of tuna. And short of draining my permanently dirty swimming pool, which is causing me constant grief, and filling it with petrol, which I'd love to be able to do, you can't take advantage of this in, with any long-term planning. You just have to enjoy it while it exists. Yeah, no, it's good. I must admit, I'm one of those people I never take any notice of the price of petrol. I know I've got to get it. I know it's going to cost me enough if I fill the tank. But you're right. I mean, there hasn't been that many times when I fill the tank, it ticks over 100 bucks. But they're the only times I recognise that, gee, it's expensive. Um, and because I've hardly been driving anywhere, I don't think I've filled my tank for about three weeks. So I'll, I'll make a mental note of that to check next time. All right, last one from me and another TV theme and it follows on from the two I just told you. So I watched Unorthodox on Netflix. I watched Punk on SBS On Demand and they do have some fantastic programming, most of which I think doesn't actually appear on the dedicated free-to-air channel. But it made me think, and I tweeted something to this effect, has there ever been a bigger gap between the quality of programming on streaming services and on free-to-air television? 
because it is just like another universe. You've got all this quality drama, documentaries, film on the streaming services, which everyone's watching and talking about. Uh, they are just programs which are the subject of water cooler conversation, as they call it. Free to air is, in contrast, is just a, a catalogue of reality TV repeats of programs you didn't really like first time around, news and uh, not even any sport now because there's no sport happening. But seriously, literally the only program I now watch on free to air television is Media Watch. And I even watched that on um, iView several hours after it's screened. So uh, I could happily do away with um, free-to-air TV now and not miss it one iota. And I can't believe, you know, free-to-air networks worried about hastening their demise. Try putting on some decent bloody programming, for God's sake. Yeah, it's a good point. All right. Po- that's, I reckon that's a pretty good point. Except my family really enjoys Lego Masters. I think it's good. Oh, is that right? Yeah, okay. Well, I, no, I have heard people say that. But again, I, I would say this, fine. If you had said to me 20 years ago there will be a high-rating, successful show in prime time on a major network which involved people building stuff out of Lego, I would have thought you were taking the piss. I would have thought you're off your block, your Lego block. Okay. Very good. Uh, my final observation comes sort of from the world of TV. We don't have much live sport at the moment, but there was something on the weekend that was bloody brilliant. Now, uh, we've known each other for, what, seven or eight years? Uh, Yeah, about eight years, yeah. Okay, well, in a time before you knew me, and I'm sure you'll jaw-drop at this, I was a bit of a gym junkie, and at least I love going to gym five five days a week, and, you know. Yes, I'll I'll take your word for it. Had the rig to suit certainly compared to this thing that I'm lumping mm-hmm. around at the moment. But was I had a personal trainer, Steve Brown, who was a Australian and international champion deadlifter. Now, deadlifting is uh, a power lifter. Includes three disciplines, deadlift, squat, and bench press. And he was also a bodybuilder. And he trained me. I got to know him because he trained my wife, Natalie, even before we got married. And Natalie, who's about five foot nine, five, you know, she's not short, um, powerfully built, was a brilliant deadlifter. Fantastic form. Now, deadlifting, I don't know if you know, Rowan, it's where the weight, the bar is set up with barbells, as you can imagine. Uh, but it sits on the floor, and a legal deadlift is lifting it from the floor to your hip and holding it there whilst in the upright position. So you have to straighten up and hold it at your hip. And Natalie, in fact, is a former Australian uh, champion, national champion, and Australian record holder. Wow, uh, I didn't know that at all. Congratulate, yeah, go Nat, go yeah, Nat. Yeah, she, she, in her first competition, broke the Australian record for the 82 division class, deadlifting 175 kilos, which is a mighty lift for a woman. Well, wow. Uh, at 3 a.m. on Sunday morning, there was a planned world record attempt for men in the deadlift by somebody that I reckon you know, Hapthor Bjornsson. Do you know that name? Oh, yeah, he is uh, the mountain from Game of Thrones. Spot on. Your program, Game of Thrones, well known, six foot nine, just a foot taller than that. Um, huge mountain of a man, pardon the pun, and... The world record that's held been held for about four years, since 2016, is 500 kilos. 
which is Jesus. over 1,100 pounds. That is a small, yeah, that, that is a, I'll give you an idea what it is in weight. That is a thoroughbred racehorse thereabout. <laughs> They're around 500 kilos. It's an enormous weight for a person to lift off the ground. He was going for 501 kilos. Uh, he had three lifts, started with a modest 410, did easily, 465. Now, interestingly, his coach is an Aussie, so there was a bit of Aussie content. At 3.30am, I find myself watching TV. It's very testosterone-driven, this, you know, there's roaring, as he builds up the blood flow, and I'm standing there virtually with him going, come on, lift, lift, and not easily, but he gets it off the ground and broke the all-time deadlift record. It now stands at 501 kilos. It was great to watch, and you can easily go back on... Uh, go to YouTube, anybody, and just watch this man mountain move a, a small hillock and lift it to his hip. Very impressive. Did the kids appreciate the guttural roars coming from your direction at three in the morning? Uh, they're probably still upstairs playing on the video game box or whatever they are. Hard to get them to sleep okay. nowadays. No, no, it's very good. Uh, I like that one. Uh, thanks for sharing with us all. All right, there's enough life hacks uh, for this week, Fanny. Uh, how about we take a trip back in time? Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, well, your choice of year again this week, Fanny. So I braced myself because you always make it difficult and uh, you didn't let me down on that score once again. What year are we doing? I think you'll know why. And our listeners who understand that I'm a Kim St Kilda supporter will appreciate that it's 1966. Oh, of course. Well, you've done 65 and 67, so hopefully this is the last of that, uh, that era. But uh, no, no, good choice. And when I had a look through it, Plenty of interesting stuff to talk about. Uh, let's talk about uh, music first. Uh, among notable releases, there was uh, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. Uh, Bob Dylan released Blonde on Blonde. Simon and Garfunkel had the Sounds of Silence. Rolling Stones released Aftermath. Um, they're all albums, of course. Finally, have you got an album for us or have you gone with your cop-out single ploy again? It is a single, but it's by no means a cop-out because it didn't appear on an album. Certainly not in Australia. They released an album internationally with this song, but <clears throat> in many lists of great Australian songs, this appears at number one. It is the iconic Easy Beats hit, Friday on My Mind. Of course, ah, it, yes. the Easy Beats all... Born Overseas, I think uh, Stevie Wright and Vander and another band member, uh, Harry Vander, of course, were born in England. George Young was born in Scotland and um, Dave Diamond was a Dutchman. Now, together, they formed the Easy Beats. They had had success in 1965. Uh, their first album came out in 65, but in 66 was this hit that would go to number one in Holland, number six in the UK, number 14 or 15 on the Billboard charts in the US. The first real internationally successful Australian song that was written by Australians, sung by Australians and was genuine rock and roll. The great Friday on my mind. Yeah, no, good choice. Still gets plenty of airtime too. When you think about how long ago it was, arguably one of the most played Australian songs in the history of the world. 
All right, well, I've gone uh, with something very obvious, but I couldn't go past it, to be honest. Now, I've occasionally talked about how controversially I think the Beatles are slightly overrated, but I can see why people uh, poo-poo that assessment when I look at records like this. And I, you know, sort of reacquainted myself with it researching this, and I had to sit back and go, you know what? For its time, that is a bloody great album, and um, I can understand why a lot of people think it's the Beatles' best. It is Revolver, which came out in August of 1966. They really upped the ante uh, on this one in production terms, used uh, a lot of strings and sitars and some brass. Um, for, for its time, great production values, and they were just starting to get a little bit influenced by that Middle Eastern sound and uh, Middle Eastern substances, which might have influenced some of the songwriting. But a 14-track album, there's some rippers on this. Uh, Taxman, Eleanor Rigby, um, Here, There and Everywhere, famous McCartney Ballad. Um, she Said, She Said, Good Day Sunshine, uh, Dr Robert, Got to Get You Into My Life, which is great brass section in that. And I love the last track too, Tomorrow Never Knows, which, like I said, very Middle Eastern and trippy sounding and you have to you listen to it you have to keep reminding yourself geez this is a mid-60s because it sounds a lot more contemporary it sounds ahead of its time now a lot of people I, I think longer time's gone on more and more people have decided this is probably their best album more so than Sgt Peppers which used to be the sort of popular choices best Beatles record so I'm glad I re renewed my acquaintance with it because uh, I haven't listened to it for a long long time and it's bloody good, I've got to say. Revolver by the Beatles is my choice of album. Uh, all right, uh, movies, Fine. Uh, in 1966, we had uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Alfie. Uh, we had Fahrenheit 451, very chilling sci-fi movie. Um, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Georgie Girl, uh, The Endless Summer, uh, Batman the movie. Uh, what have you got? Well, interestingly enough, I've got an Australian movie and people might scratch their heads and say, what did Australia produce back in the 60s? It was an absolute favourite of mine because I love snapshots of times gone past and it gives a brilliant snapshot of Australia in the mid-60s, particularly Sydney, where it's shot around Bondi, um, also Manly, a lot of the beaches and a lot of the sprawling suburban Australia that was being filled in with new homes being built. It's called They're a Weird Mob. It's taken oh, from yes. a, a series of books by John O'Grady that introduces us to the lovable new Australian of Italian origin, Nino Colotto, uh, played by uh, a very dashing, swarthy Italian actor, Walter, um, Walter Criasi, I believe his name is, um, Chiari, Chiari, pardon me, and he actually was the boyfriend of Ava Gardner and had visited Australia for the filming of, uh, what was that film she did on the beach? On, on the beach. On the beach. And uh, who, who famously didn't say, um, this is a great place to make a movie about the end of the world. That's right. Uh, one of the most famous misquotes in history. Yep. Go so, on. In this movie, Italian immigrant Nino Colotto lands in Australia, bewildered by our customs and our language, and he's learnt some textbook English, but that doesn't help him with the g'day mates and a bit of rhyming slang. He gets work in the construction industry where he's befriended by characters played by famous Australian actors like Ed Devereaux and Chips Rafferty. 
they embrace him as one of their own and introduce him to the six o'clock swill, uh, barbecues, gatherings with the missus, and it's a real good, probably rose-coloured snapshot of Australian life, a more innocent and abundant time in the 60s. They're a weird mob. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but I, I do remember I liked it, so uh, I might see if I can dig that up somewhere. Um, he, he made, you know what a... he made famous in that movie? Nino Colotta. Yeah, the, the hat made out of a hanky, the four-cornered hanky hat. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, I've actually seen uh, an elderly Italian gent wearing one of them without irony. <laughs> uh, in fact, my uh, my ex uh, father in law, uh, God rest his soul. Um, all right, I've gone for a movie uh, sort of similar in theme, really, about cultural uh, differences and uh, misunderstandings between cultures. Uh, I've gone for a comedy called "The Russians Are Coming." The Russians Are Coming. Um, which I thought was pretty good. It uh, starred Alan Arkin, uh, Carl Reiner, Eva Marie Saint and Brian Keith and is a story of a Soviet submarine crew who venture a little too close to the American coastline to get a good look at the US of A and become stuck on a sandbar off the fictional Gloucester Island and uh, the rather bumbling captain of the submarine sends his nine-man crew uh, out in a little boat to shore to see if they can find something capable of uh, removing them from the sandbar they're stuck on. And uh, hilarity ensues because the tiny little island is populated by only a couple of hundred holiday makers and they're fairly surprised to be confronted by a Soviet Navy crew. Um, Alan Arkin plays Lieutenant Yuri Rosanov and uh, plays that role very well. Carl Reiner plays Walt Whitaker, the father of the family they first encounter. Um, but there's a series of misadventures. They sort of hijack a car to try to find a boat and then the car runs out of petrol. Um, you know, one of the Soviet crew members falls in love with a young American girl um, and eventually heads to an inevitable standoff and confrontation when the Russians are trying to get away and then there's a, a drama involving a young boy in the town and uh, both sides sort of pitch in and help and in the end they um, the Soviet submarine crew are helped to safety by the willing locals and it's a a very quaint charming little tale which given that it was made in 1966 right in the grip of the Cold War is quite remarkable really and I just wonder how the more hardline elements of uh, the US political scene viewed that movie, given that it had a very peace-loving sort of we're all just human type message about it. But I really enjoyed that film as a kid and uh, I'd recommend that to anyone. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. All right, TV, what do you got for us? Now, I'll, I'll say a couple of words to you and I reckon you'll be able to guess my TV show. <clears throat> Bang, kapow, thwack. Oh, I know. It's the old um, VFL documentary, Violent Saturday. Sunday, bloody Sunday. No, it's Batman, the TV series. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> Only on for three years, 67, 67, 68, or filmed over three years, but almost 100 episodes of Adam West and Burt Ward as Batman and Robin. Interesting, Burt Ward played Robin, who in fact was Batman's ward. <laughs> Coincidence there. Uh, it's called Schlock comedy or camp comedy, very different to the comic strip on which it was based in the movies that would later ga gain such popularity for their dark edge, 
no Heath Ledgers or Joaquin Phoenix in this one. This is all high humour. The arch enemies are filmed in full Technicolor. The colouring in this is quite the highlight with sort of pastels and very much colours of the 60s. And all of the bad people, the evil evil doers' lairs are always filmed on an angle. Makes it look like your screen's gone skew if. But that was just a technique. Uh, They stole the show, really. Catwoman played by Julianne Newmar, beautiful model, and Eartha Kitt, that great blues singer. Um, there was the Penguin, Burgess, Meredith, Egghead, Vincent Price, the Joker, uh, played by uh, Frank Gorshin. Oh, he was the Riddler. Also, John Aston of Gomez Adams fame. But it was good, campy humour, 60s style, and I quite enjoyed it. Oh, good choice. We're on a similar wavelength today because I've got good campy humour as well. And it is, uh, oh, other things that came out in 66, Star Trek and Mission Impossible. I have got, however, The Monkeys, uh, of course, the uh, short-lived TV series, only a couple of years and 58 episodes, but about the fictional pop band unsigned and struggling to make a buck in the dog-eat-dog world of the music industry. Starred uh, Mickey DeLenz, Davy Jones, the singer, uh, Peter Talk, and of course Michael Nesmith, uh, famous for that uh, probably the world's best known trivia question. What is, apart from the monkeys, what is Michael Nesmith famous for? Being the son of the woman who invented liquid paper. Correct, and made a very large fortune from it. Um, the, uh, I guess the significant thing about this is what started out as a fictional band actually became a band they uh, ended up recording and writing their own stuff had to battle to do so but did and uh, whilst the tv program wound up in 1968 the monkeys kept going all the way through until the early 70s 1971 i think um famous monkey songs uh hey hey with the monkeys of course the theme song but last train to clarksville which is a, a very good song i've always liked that pleasant valley sunday Daydream Believer and I'm a Believer, probably their most famous works, but they were good fun, the monkeys, and there was a good sort of tongue-in-cheek element to it too. I can remember one scene where Michael Nesmith is standing throwing darts at a dartboard which has a picture of the Beatles on it. There are a lot of little good-natured jabs like that at their pop uh, rivals, so to speak. So um, I think you'd probably find some of it on YouTube. Worth having a look at if you can dig it up. The monkeys. All right, we've got to finish off this retrospective with a footy memory, finally, and uh, no three guesses um, for working out what yours is going to be. Okay, it is the 1966 grand final, the only premiership for my beloved Saints, famously by a point. But I've got a few facts that you may not be aware of or listeners uh, may not be aware of, so a bit of fun here. First of all, she was a close game all afternoon. It was St Kilda by a point at quarter time, Collingwood by four at Half time. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, sorry. It was St Kilda, St Kilda by four at quarter time. Collingwood by a point at half time. St Kilda by four again at three quarter time with the pattern follow and Collingwood win by a point. Not on your Nelly. St Kilda by a point, 10 14 to 10 13, courtesy of that wobbly point by Barry Breen. Now, of course, Kevin Neal always points out how's he the hero because out of 10 14, he kicked a brilliant five goals for. That followed on from four goals in the preliminary final against Essendon and two goals in 
the first final against Collingwood that St Kilda lost by 10 points. But the star of that game was Des Tudnam in the first final, kicked seven goals won from the centre, which was a magnificent effort, a really fantastic performance. We move on to a couple of interesting... Do you know that there were two players, I don't think even St Kilda fans know this, there were two players for Collingwood that day who would go on and play with St Kilda. Both joined St Kilda in 1968. Max Pitt and Gary Wallace. Now, oh, no, I didn't know that. Now he's, I, I remember that Max Pitt kicked a great goal in the last quarter. Huge goal from the final. boundary line. I've got a bit of a, a trivia question for you. Now, okay. I've, I've told you that uh, two players went mm-hmm. on to play for St Kilda. There were two players and a coach who played for well, two, three of the Collingwood players went on to Fitzroy. Two as a player, one as a coach. Do you know who they were? Uh, I think I might, actually. Uh, one of them was Doug Searle, who uh, played for Fitzroy and then went on to coach their under-19s from memory. Am I right? Spot on. Okay. Uh, oh, I've got one. This one, uh, very late. Lynn Thompson. Went and played a season at South Melbourne and then played his final season of league footy in 1980 with Fitzroy. Well done. Do you know who went on to coach Fitzroy? Uh, got it. Kevin Rose. Three out of three. Beautiful work, mate. Three years as coach of Fitzroy. Yes. Yeah, so there is a connection there. Well, they were neighbouring suburbs, weren't they? Yeah. So a few facts less known. Also, just a couple of things. St Kilda didn't have their best team in that day. Carl Dittrich's not playing, having been rubbed out against Fitzroy for striking Daryl Peoples. Kevin Roberts, a very good player, was injured. There was another player who played first nine or ten rounds for St Kilda and did his knee and missed the rest of the season and would go on to be a very big figure in football. Do you know who that was? And he was playing well when he got injured. Uh, yes, I do, as a matter of fact. It is none other than former AFL CEO Ross Oakley. Excellent work. Yeah, he was a, you wouldn't know it in some of the uh, decisions he made. St Kilda supporters used to scratch their heads, but he was a St Kilda footballer. That's some good trivia there. That is uh, that is very good. Uh, any more or is that it? That's it, my friend. All right. Well, I'm following up your 66 grand final story with, uh, I just want to talk a little bit about the commentary of that game, the Channel 7 commentary, which has become almost as famous as the actual game and has spawned some of the most memorable lines of commentary dialogue in football history. And if you're around any gathering of males approaching or in their 50s who have had a few under their belt and are talking footy, you are likely to hear one of the following exchanges. We're talking about Mike Williamson, uh, Alan Butchgale, and Mr Football himself, EJ Witten. Uh, like this one, Fonny, familiar with this one. Butchgale starts it. Oh, there's tremendous pressure out here. The excitement. The place is seething. I'll have a heart attack in a minute, honestly. I've already had three, Butch. Superb. Ted Witten interrupting. And, of course, uh, Butch Gale would subsequently die of a heart attack in 1987. And I have this. uh, uh, Mike Williamson told me this story when I wrote a piece about the call back in uh, 1996, that in the church at Butch's funeral, um, it was a very quiet, sombre moment, and uh, Teddy uh, crawled up behind Mike Williamson, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, "Well, now will you believe him that he's going to have a heart?" <laughs> and, 
and uh, Mike Williamson probably burst out laughing in the middle of a funeral. Of course, the other famous one, uh, Butch Gale, it's ticking on towards time on and still it's a draw match. Oh, Michael, you could be right. This could be a draw. I tip this. Of course, Mike Williamson virtually every year in a close grand final would tip a draw. And uh, unfortunately for him, never quite got it right. There's the Barry Breen point. Um, it's taken by Breen. It's a, po- it's a point. St Kilda in front. St Kilda in front. How long have they been playing, Mike? They have been playing if my handle stops shaking and I can see the watch. 27 and a half minutes. Or the bit just after that where Brian Minot takes a mark. He'll be paid the mark. Teddy Whitten in barracking mode. Slow it down. Slow it down. Yes, he's taking your advice all right, Ted. Can the Saints hang on and win their first ever? They've got it. And uh, the final one where Bob Murray takes the match-saving mark in St Kilda's defence, leading to Teddy Whitten now going complete crazy eight bonkers. Hit the, the boundary, boundary line. line. Uh... And, of course, the siren goes thereafter. Mayhem ensues. But there is one uh, great line out of this which never gets uh, uh, enough kudos for me, and it's a, about a minute after the final siren. And Butch Gale says, a magnificent effort by both teams and to win a grand final by one point. I'm shaking. I don't know how you feel, but that is the most emotional thing I've ever seen in my life. Whereupon Mike says, Butch, I just put the lighted end of a cigarette into my mouth. Oh, golly. So there you go. The famous call of the 1966 grand final. That is it for a vinyl and video this week. Uh, are you up for a bit of ranting, Fanny? Always up for it, and I love yours as well. All right, let's do it. On Footyology, the rant off. Okay, rant on, Fanny. I'm ready to go. I've been fired up about this one for a couple of days. I've gone political. Oh, um, wow, what a surprise. Uh, this will scare the natives, but uh, all right, count me in. One, two, and political you are. I'm pissed off with the state opposition, Finey. Look, everyone knows my political leaning, so you might think I'm being facetious. And if truth be known, I'm more than happy for the Victorian Liberal Party to remain in opposition for the foreseeable future. But a healthy democracy needs at least a viable alternative set of ideas and policies for the public to consider and debate. And let's be honest, right now, the libs in this state would have trouble buying bananas from a bloody greengrocer. I wonder how many people could actually name their leader. Well, his name is Michael O'Brien, and if they ever do a remake of The Invisible Man, this guy has to be a shoe-in for the lead role. And if there's anything worse than leading an invisible political force, it's probably when on the few occasions that party does bob up in the public eye, it's for making complete dicks of themselves. Like Tim Smith, for example. The member for Q could be helping in practical ways to ease the burden for those thousands in his electorate for whom life is difficult at the moment as we all struggle through the COVID-19 crisis. So what's his contribution? Well, a couple of weeks back, he bobbed up to let us know that apparently the most important thing on the agenda was removing the Yarra Bend area of a colony of bats because of fear of them transmitting the virus. Do I even need to start listing the reasons that's a pretty silly idea? Now, of course, he's jumped on the pile on about Victorian Deputy Chief Medical Officer Annalise Van Diemen who had the gall to observe on Twitter that Captain Cook's arrival in this country had some parallels with the spread of this current virus. Now, you can argue that a public official shouldn't be making comments which could be interpreted, however tenuously, as a political statement. But to demand the resignation of a senior health official in the midst of a major global pandemic over a pretty trivial offence is pretty bloody stupid. 
more so if that sort of phony culture war is the only shot you have in your locker, which Smith has proved repeatedly, along with his even more laughable colleague, James Newbury. Yep, the same guy who last state election managed almost to lose the unlosable seat of Brighton and who specialises in these pathetic plays the rest of the state finds tedious and odious. Seriously, if we're talking remakes of popular films, I'll give you those two MPs and one movie title, Dumb and Dumber. Not to be left out, Liberal Party Deputy Georgie Crozier joined in to declare the Deputy Chief Health Officer's political ideology clouds her medical judgment on decisions to Victoria. Now, it's only May, Finey, but that's already set a pretty high bar for stupidest comment of the year. I don't know about you, but if someone is a qualified and proven medical professional helping guide us through a health crisis, I actually don't care that much whether their political leanings are to the left of Karl Marx or to the right of Genghis bloody Khan. And as for their federal counterpart, Peter Dutton, also calling on Van Diemen to resign, I have just three words, Ruby Princess and shut up. Hasn't he done a sterling job locking up little kids while letting thousands of potential virus carriers waltz off a boat? Mate, you look like a spud, you are a spud. Really, it's comedy capers fighting. Unfortunately, it's going on as the backdrop to a serious health crisis which needs a bipartisan approach, calm rational decision-making, and at the very least, a willingness to rein in pathetic cheap shots even most of the Libs media cheer squad find embarrassing. For God's sake, can you please give it a rest? And to that end, here's another remake the State Liberal Party could try for five seconds and do us all a favour, and that's anything performed by Marcel Marceau. Yeah, well said. Uh, powerful stuff. Now, that Victorian health officer, what's her name? Annalise Van Diemen. Should be Tasmanian, really, shouldn't she? The... Yes, yeah, we did those jokes. Okay. Uh, now, I don't know what news I was watching on what channel, but I got my hackles up because they had a former health official from Victoria and they asked him whether her comments were uh, inopportune and what his opinion was and I was almost about to throw something at the television. He came on and he said, no, it's completely wrong that she said that. Uh, These comments are outrageous. And by the way, uh, Aboriginal health is far better after white settlement than before white settlement. I don't know where he got those stats from. Who kept the stats before white settlement? And basically, he kept on and on. His premise was that a paid health official should not become political, yet it was quite clear his politics being right-wing, that doesn't bother me, but he imbued his argument with his own personal political opinions. So basically, what he was saying was, it's okay if you agree with me, but it's wrong to have a political opinion if it disagrees with me. Absolutely outrageous. Yeah, well that, that pretty much sums up the usual freedom of speech brigade, except when it uh, disagrees with them. All right, are you ready? I'm, I'm ready to rant. In. Three, two, one, rant. Today is Monday, Rowan. Do I get a gold star or an elephant stamp? See, it's the only day of the week I know anymore because we do the podcast on Mondays, don't we? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we do. Every other day of the week is completely lost to me. I don't even know their order anymore. Is tomorrow Wednesday? When's the weekend? Is Saturday followed by Tuesday? I received a pinch and punch for first of the month from one of my kids a few days ago. I gave him a quick sock to the mouth. I said, don't pinch and punch me for the first of the month. I don't know what bloody month it is. I have completely lost perspective of days. You're a... Mate of, you're a mate of Brian Mannix's, aren't you? I am. 
he's going to have to rework his song, Working for the Weekend, because weekends don't exist anymore. Can he release a new single, Working for the, what day is it? Thursday? Friday? Well, actually, just to chip in, I think your music uh, might be faltering as well because Working for the Weekend was Canadian band Loverboy. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I always confuse Brian Mannix with a Loverboy because he thinks he's a Loverboy. <laughs> he does. He does. What was their true. song? Uh, everybody Wants to Work. Yeah. Not everybody. Certainly not in my house. This is a bit and of a where two-fister. Will we be, and where will we, will we be in 50 years? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot that. Now. Look, the reality is we need to get back to some semblance of order because, quite frankly, I'm sick and tired of doing this broadcast, this podcast on Fridays, and thank God, as it is a Friday podcast, that tomorrow's Tuesday. I can't wait for the weekend. I love my Thursdays. Very good, very good. Well, let's just hope we get a start to AFL season 2015 sometime soon. Who knows uh, what day it'll be on. Time to say goodbye, Ray. All right, that's about it. Uh, quick word for our sponsors, Finey, if you will. Burgers have been available, the best burgers, right through this COVID-19 scare and remain so. It's 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. A big mwah for those beautiful burgers to all the team at Andrews. And a big mwah if you want a beautiful house, go to West Point Properties, Nick Spartels. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for your company once again. We'll see you next Monday. Stay safe. Wash your hands. What? And we'll... Next Monday? Yeah, wash your... Oh, uh, or maybe Sunday afternoon. It's Friday, Or Thursday it? morning. All right. We'll see you next week.